My guest in this episode is James Daly from Fairer Finance. We talk about raising standards in financial services customer experience. Welcome to episode 116 of the Marketing and Finance Podcast. This is the podcast for ideas and inspiration on marketing your business and growing your business and for discussing topics on all things finance. And now here's your host, Roger Edwards. Hey folks, thanks as always for tuning into the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Apologies for my gravelly voice. I've been fighting a throat bug all week, but don't worry, I recorded today's interview weeks ago, so it's only this intro where I sound like a breathless Dalek. As you know, I've been a massive fan of the audio podcast format for many years, but I've also been looking to expand my video content as well. I've been doing short two to three minute marketing tips videos for the last 18 months. And last week I launched a video blog, taking you behind the scenes of my businesses as a marketing consultant and my side hustle as a fitness and yoga instructor. Please do check them out. Visit rogeredwards.co.uk and click on the video link in the menu list. And if you need help coming up with a simple marketing strategy to grow your business, please do get in touch. So this week, my guest is James Daly. We chat about how ratings help customers pick companies on factors other than price, getting beyond blissful ignorance to find out what customer service is really like, the insurance power of three, claim stats, ombudsman complaints, and transparency, and why you have to move beyond legally watertight to focus on what is fair for the customer. James has been a financial journalist and consumer rights campaigner for more than 16 years. In March 2014, he launched a new consumer group and financial consultancy, fairerfinance.com. Their tables rank financial services companies based on how they treat their customers, how good they are at handling complaints and how transparent they are. These ratings are designed to help customers of insurers and banks look beyond price and also to encourage companies to compete on service and transparency. Fairer Finance makes its money by changing the industry from the inside out, working with companies to create clearer documents and more transparent customer journeys. Fairer Finance isn't trying to villainize the industry, it's dedicated to raising standards. James believes companies shouldn't just tell their customers they're fair and good, they should show it. So let's get right into that interview with James here on the Marketing and Finance Podcast. James Daly, welcome to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Hello. Hi, James. How are you? Where are we Skyping each other from today? I'm in Edinburgh, as always. Uh, I'm in sunny Tooting. Well, actually, not so sunny now. I think the sun has gone down, but it's been beautiful here all day. Fantastic. And James, you're, you work for a company called Fairer Finance. You write guides about financial um, services products. You do ratings for financial services products. And you're championing a good customer experience from uh, financial services providers. And I really want to dig deep into how you came up with the idea for the company and what you're hoping to achieve and what you have achieved so far. But before we get into that, James, tell the people who are listening to the Marketing and Finance podcast today a little bit about your background and basically basically what makes James Daly tick? Uh, yeah, I, I started out as a financial journalist um, about, well, I guess 17 years ago now. Uh, it was just sort of going into the dot-com crash. 
Uh, and I think I ended up in finance a bit by accident. I would always wanted to be a political journalist. Um, but uh, I realized that it was a bit easier getting into finance than politics. Uh, and I ended up doing work experience in the Sunday Telegraph uh, city offices and got a bit of a taste for it. Uh, and just at that very moment, um, a journalist some people might have heard of called Paul Farrow was uh, about to leave money marketing to come to the Sunday Telegraph. Yeah. Uh, and so the guys at the Sunday Telegraph rang money marketing and said, we've got this guy in work experience here. He seems quite smart. Why don't you give him a job? Uh, and, and that was the beginning of it all, really. Uh, and uh, while I was at money marketing, I, I sort of did everything I could to get onto the nationals. I used to write freelance articles for the personal finance pages, the Times and, and the Telegraph. Uh, and I eventually escaped from there onto the business, um, which was sort of a Sunday Financial Times type newspaper where Andrew Neal was my boss, okay. which was quite a hurried year of my life. Um, and then uh, from there, back to the Sunday Telegraph, where I worked for Liz Dolan on the personal finance section and sat alongside Paul Farrow, whose job I'd taken three years before. Of course. Uh, and from there on to the Independent. And, and when I was at the Independent, I eventually became personal finance editor. Uh, and also wrote a column about cycling, which I loved. And and it was there, I guess, where I started to get the opportunity to uh, write comment and opinion. And in the longer I'd been in the finance sector, I realized that it was an area where often customers were getting a bad deal because they just didn't understand what a good deal was. Mm -hmm. And you know, I realized that there was a real role for the press to keep companies honest um, and to help customers make better decisions uh, and in turn also keep companies honest. Uh, and so, so that's what I was trying to do when I was at the Independent, but we just didn't have any money. Right. Um, you know, the, it was really just writing thousands of words of copy a day and no time to ever do any investigations or really change things. So, you know, my columns might have a small impact here and there, um, but I was itching to, to do something more material and see, um, you know, m my concerns and campaigns turned into something more meaningful. And so I left there and went to work for Witch, uh, where I was their head of money content. And that was a place where we really did have budget and we could mic up old ladies and send them into bank branches and see what they would get missold. <laughs> and, um, and and it was, you know, it was a great place to work. And I, I really felt that we did a lot of original research, started a lot of campaigns that resulted in change in the financial services industry. Um, and that really whet my appetite to sort of build build from that. Um, and which was quite a political organization and didn't really sort of suit my style of working. So after four years, I broke out of there and thought I'd have a go at doing it on my own. And, uh, and I felt there were things that which wasn't doing that I could be doing. And, and so that's how Fair Finance came about. And, and, and I guess the starting point for it was these ratings that would help customers look beyond price, because it seemed to me that although customers have more choice these days because of comparison sites, um, with that comes more confusion mm -hmm. uh, and also a race to the bottom in terms of quality as companies end up competing uh, you know, pretty much exclusively on price. Uh, and so it, it felt to me as there was a real need to have some kind of ratings that look beyond that that would help consumers pick companies that 
were going to look after them once they became their customers and look after their interests. Mm-hmm. Um, but also by having these kind of league tables that looked at things like customer satisfaction and um, transparency, it would give companies an incentive to compete on those things because, you know, at the moment they didn't really have any incentive to compete on them. If, if you if you're nice to your customers, that costs more money. Uh, and hits your bottom line and actually nobody's loyal to you because they don't trust you anyway. Um, But if people started to buy products based on our ratings and we're only going for companies that were well rated Mm -hmm. by fairer finance, um, then suddenly all companies would have to start investing in customer experience and transparency and complaints. And and so that was the idea and, and, and it sort of bloomed from there. And and I guess, you know, as we got the ratings going, we realized that we needed to make some money um, to sustain this whole this whole plan. Um, and, and so we do that by selling endorsements to the companies that do well in our tables uh, and then also by working with companies who want to do better and mainly rewriting complicated terms and conditions into a language that people can understand, um, you know, or helping them improve their online customer journeys, be more transparent generally. Uh, And all of that has sort of fit together very nicely. And I don't think I quite saw that Fair Finance would turn out as it has done. Um, But the model seems to work very well. We're funded by doing work with the industry, which is in the interest of consumers. And we use the proceeds of that to pay for our research uh, and to lobby and campaign for a better deal for consumers more broadly. And of course, when you were working in all those different sorts of um, printed media, and I guess more recently online media, the message would have changed over time. So when you were on the trades, it was very much product stories, industry stories. When you're working for a national, they'll maybe dig a little bit deeper if there's a if there's a company doesn't pay a claim here or there's some high charges there, they, you might do a bit of investigation. And I, and I guess which was very... Uh, very survey orientated and trying to pick apart the best deals for people. Was was there a moment during each of those three different experiences where where there was like a light bulb moment, James, where you thought, yeah, and that that was the moment when Fairer Finance was born? I, I mean, I think for me, uh, when I was at Witch, we were constantly thinking about ways that um, you know we could be more useful to customers, and one thing we did there was come up with these. Uh, uh, these ratings, which I guess were the sort of precursor to the fairer finance ratings, the, the which recommended provider tables, mm-hmm. uh, and those were really based entirely on customer surveys. Um, but but I realised that you know there there was something really useful there in helping customers see what other customers thought of a brand before they buy. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that was the moment where I realised that, that that there was a need for this kind of additional information for consumers. But but the longer I worked on those tables, the more I could see their flaws because in financial services, often the customers are not the best judges of whether or not they're they're actually getting a good deal so somebody you know might be incredibly happy with their insurer but they haven't made a claim and they're just blissfully ignorant Mm. um and so that that was when i started to think how can we come up with something that, that that does what we're trying to do here at which but also has some more objective measures of whether a company is really looking after its customers and and that was why um, as well as doing customer polling, which, which we do do for our fair finance ratings through a, an independent polling company called Opinion, mm-hmm. um, we also then bring in complaints data from the financial ombudsman service 
uh, and we do our own transparency analysis, you know, effectively mystery shopping the customer journey, um, you know, for each provider. And so in doing that, we've got some more objective planks about how companies are performing, you know, using our expertise as people that understand the industry to look at whether they're doing a good job. Uh, and that compa- combined with the, the customer's views, I think is quite potent. Mm, absolutely. And I'm just looking at the Fairer Finance website and you, you've you really narrowed it down into two sections. You've got bank and savings reviews and you've got insurance reviews. And obviously we can't talk about all of those. So may, maybe we should focus in on, say, life insurance, because obviously recently the, the two of us went to a, a seminar just before Christmas or, organized by the Protection Review where we were just talking about this very thing. So maybe you could just quickly tell me how you've compartmentalized and, and scored the life insurance companies and what the criteria are that you use yeah so life insurance is the one sector that is a bit different to the other eight sectors that we look at because it doesn't include any customer polling mm-hmm. uh, and of course that, that's for obvious reasons um the customer is deceased so we yeah. can't poll them uh, and we can't poll their you know family very easily either because they're, they're not in the mood for answering surveys uh so we thought, right, what what else can we use? And so in that sector, we realized that companies were all publishing this statistic, percentage of claims paid every year. And we thought that was quite an interesting measure of of how customer friendly um, a company was because life insurance is a very binary product, really. You know, mm. um, you know you're either dead or you're not. That Obviously, there is fraud out there. Um, but, you know, I, I guess I take a sort of, slightly harder line view than perhaps some in the industry would do that you know as long as you haven't willfully lied about your medical conditions then really you should be getting paid out uh, by a life insurance company and that if you are selling life insurance direct to consumers you the life insurer must carry some responsibility uh, around how much non-disclosure there Uh, some of the questions are quite complicated and you know, I think it's all very well for you to say, oh, well, you didn't answer question seven entirely correctly. We've looked at that against your medical records and we've decided now you're dead. We're only going to pay half of the claim. Um, that That's an incredibly harsh penalty. Uh, and so, you know, by publishing that stat, percentage of claims paid in our life insurance tape, it gives insurers an incentive to try harder and harder and harder to pay every single claim uh, and to reduce the levels of fraud and non-disclosure on their books. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, every insurer will tell you that they pay every valid claim. But we all know that, you know, that there are some that are a, a bit quicker to turn down ones that fall into the grey than others. Um, and that's what we wanted to highlight there. And, you know, that is not a perfect metric um, by any stretch. And, uh, you know, one of the things, as you remember, we discussed at our seminar was whether or not everybody is reporting that in the same way and, and that's something that you know we want to talk to the ABI and, and providers about to try and standardize but I think there's there's something there that is of use to consumers um, and, and and I think you know we took the view of life insurance let's get these ratings out there we think there's enough in what we're doing um, to help consumers and they're not perfect but there's no better way to give the industry an incentive to work with us than to have something out on the table which isn't quite perfect. Um, you know, otherwise we'll spend 10 years negotiating and never get anywhere. Absolutely um, right. <laughs> so so that's that's how we got we were with that. So we, we continue to debate with the industry about how we can have better measures, better objective measures of how they're performing. 
Um, but, but obviously, percentage of claims paid is only part of the score. Yeah. Um, the other two parts are the ombudsman stats. So that's taking the percentage of complaints that go to the ombudsman that are upheld in favour of the customer um, and turning that into a score. And so broadly speaking, you know, the closer you get to 100 in our tables, uh, that would suggest that the ombudsman is agreeing with you, the company, every time and not agreeing with the customer. And the closer right. you get to zero, it's the um, And, you know, we like that. As a was by the time you get to the ombudsman, you've already had the chance to put things right. Uh, and, you know, if at that point the ombudsman says, actually, you got it wrong first time, we now want you to pay more or pay out or whatever it is, um, you know, then, of course, uh, you, you failed your customer in some respects. And so, um, you know, that's why we feel it's a, a decent metric to look at. Again, the, the, the critics, uh, you know, have some points out about that metric as well. It, the way that the financial ombudsman reports it is that it is in the insurance sector, and that includes income protection and critical illness. Um, and so, you know, if you are a broad protection insurer that, that does IP and critical illness, you know, your your complaints are more complex in yeah, those areas. Uh, and so you are you you are potentially going to you know have a sort of different set of outcomes. But you know our defence is always that you know you should be getting it right first time, regardless. And you know of course it does make it hard for the companies that have a broader protection book. But um, you know it, it is still a useful um, measure for the customer to know how often the ombudsman is agreeing with you and how often they're not, even if it is tougher for those guys that are in IP and, and kick as well. And then the final uh, part of our ratings is our transparency analysis. And that is walking through the purchase process, mostly online and seeing whether or not companies are telling customers clearly what we think they should be. Um, so in life insurance, as in all sectors, 25% of the marks go to an analysis of the clarity of the policy document. Right. And so that'll be an analysis of reading ages, like how complex is the language in it. That looks at things like average sentence length, um, you know, average number of words on the page. Uh, and then we look at things like how much white space there is. Is there any color? Uh, is it laid out intuitively? Are the key... Um, exclusions uh, brought to the customer's attention prominently, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so we have quite an involved scoring process for for our, our document analysis, and that's 25% of the score. And then the other bits of transparency analysis in life insurance, they are things like uh, if you offer decreased cover, decreasing cover, do you make it clear that the policy might not pay out enough to pay off your mortgage if interest rates go up? Do you tell them what the interest rate is to calculate um, the amount by which the cover decreases. Um, do you talk about inflation anywhere in the purchase journey and let them know that um, the level of cover isn't inflation protected? Uh, if you offer waiver of premium, do you explain the shortcomings there? Uh, are, are any exclusions laid out clearly? Uh, is is the terminal illness benefit and, and any limitations of that explained clearly? Can you find the whole policy document in full easily during the purchase journey? So it's that kind of stuff. Uh, that we're looking at and we do almost all of that online mainly through comparison sites and we're only looking at companies who are selling their products direct to customers right um so 
so people like Aegon are only in there because you can buy their policies through comparison sites. Um, you know, 99% of Aegon's protection business is, is not direct, um, but they are in our tables as long as you can buy their policies through comparison sites. I'm really interested in the transparency rating, and actually you've used that in pretty much everything. So you've got transparency ratings for bank accounts, credit cards, mortgages, personal loans, as well as all the insurance um sectors and and different types of insurance are there any areas are there any parts of the financial services industry that you think are doing better than others at transparency it's something that's interested me for many years back to when i worked for big corporate i was always majorly on clear communication i hated bloated language and complicated text and all of that sort of thing so i'm really fascinated to know if anybody's doing it better than anybody else well well, perhaps i could turn that question on its head it's easy to tell you who is who worse. Isn't worse yeah uh, sure um i mean you know the credit sector is worse so uh, personal loans credit cards mortgages tend to be uh, you know the, the least comprehensible terms and conditions that you can find P- part of that is because of the history of their regulation and that mm-hmm. the consumer credit act um you know was quite onerous uh, and although now credit regulation is sort of being brought within the FCA from the OFT where it once was, um, the Consumer Credit Act still exists and, it, and it's one of the least consumer friendly pieces of regulation really in legislation because it stipulates that companies have to do things in a certain prescriptive way that isn't often actually very helpful for the customer. Um, so. So that end of the market is worse. Uh, across the other sectors, there are pockets of good practice, um, but you know there isn't any one sector that is better than another. I mean, I I think that the insurance sector, the general insurance sector, is is probably the area where um, you know there are more people working on clearer policy documents because they realise that actually you know, it's good for their business. Um, if they can more clearly set customer expectations and help customers understand what's covered and what's not covered before they, they buy a policy, then that's going to set them in um, better stead further down the road if the customer ever comes to make a claim. Um, you know, whereas banks uh, and sort of other parts of the financial services industry, the terms and conditions sort of a thing that people reluctantly feel they've got to have and they you know they sort of think well we'll we'll get around to improving that one day but it's not a priority but but i think in insurance it is the whole product isn't it yeah the the terms and conditions are what is covered and what isn't covered and finding ways to communicate that in a language that people can understand is is actually crucial um so so we're seeing that first i mean life insurance isn't too bad because life insurance is not very complicated um Having said that, plenty of terms and conditions in the life insurance sector which are unnecessarily complicated, and um, so there's still plenty of room for improvement there as well. Yeah, I think we know. I know personally what it's like because you'll always get that scenario in a in a financial services institution where it's almost like writing marketing material and writing policy wordings by committee. So you might start off with something that's quite nice and simple and sharp and snappy. And then the legal person will have a go at it and the compliance person will have a go at it. And then somebody in the customer service area will have a go at it. And sometimes they're worried about the regulation, so they'll 
have that hat on and sometimes they might just suggest changes because they personally wouldn't have written it like that which I always object to anyway and before you know it that nice crisp clear um, understandable piece of text has morphed into this bloated management speak jargonistic thing with all sorts of legal jargon in it and legal um, words that nobody apart from the people in that room can understand and there's so much pressure on a lot of these people to make sure that they're protected and they end up with something that just doesn't work and and we really do as an industry need to try and move away from that sort of practice and and focus on the clear and the simple and and as long as the clear and the simple is legally sound then leave it alone as long as the clear and simple is compliant leave it alone but i do think there's still quite a lot of pressure out there and and that's where we found there was a real opportunity from a business perspective um you know, we we now go in and help companies rewrite documents from scratch. Yeah. Uh, and you know what what we realised nobody else had been doing before was having those challenging conversations with the compliance officers and the lawyers, and saying, okay, so you say that this absolutely has to be in there, but we want you to justify. Um, you know, we want to talk through some hypotheticals with you. Let's look at some ombudsman and case history. Uh, and, you know, bit by bit, we've worn a lot of companies down. Yeah. Where they've conceded that in the end, that line was in there because it's always been in there and everybody else has got it in there. But actually, nobody can think of a situation where they would ever rely on it. Um, so, OK, let's get rid of it. Um, you know, and I think that th- there's a cultural change needed in most companies to communicate clearly with customers because, uh, you know, th- this is... Uh, a very different landscape these days from where the insurance industry started. Treating customers fairly and the principles there sit over the top of the regulations uh, and companies are still struggling to kind of get to grips with that. And they're not realising that by writing their terms and conditions and policy documents in this complex language and overly legalistically, when they get to a dispute at the ombudsman, the ombudsman's taking one look at it and thinking, well, that wasn't really fair and reasonable for the customer. Uh, How could they possibly have understood that? Let's just throw it out. Uh, And, you know, the the companies have poured over every word in there and the lawyers have said this is legally watertight, but they're forgetting that 99% of their disputes are at the ombudsman where... You know, it's much more about what's fair and reasonable, whether a customer could have understood it. Fine. If they'd gone to a court of law, they probably would have done wonderfully and and their company would have been able to to reject the claim. But it doesn't work like that. You know, these documents are not being used in courts of law. Uh, And so, you know, if, if you're going to acknowledge that, then to have a document that truly protects the company, you have to completely tear up the way you've thought about risk for the last 30 years. Uh, and think, okay, actually, what we've got to do here is focus on helping our customers understand what this policy does, what it doesn't do, and make that as clear as possible. And, you know, the legal necessities should be inserted afterwards once we've created a document that has the customer in mind first. Uh, And that is a a long journey and and quite a painful one for a lot of companies to go on. Uh, And a lot of them just want to deal with it, you know, with a sort of edit of their terms and conditions. (laughs) Can you tidy up a bit? That that is not it. They are missing the point. Yeah, I've had quite a few um, examples um, in my own business where people have sent me booklets and documents. And they said, can you just give that a quick edit? And I've looked at it and thought, hmm 
probably the best thing to do with this is just start from scratch, to be honest. <laughs> but, uh, you know, su- such is the uh, starting point for quite a lot of this stuff. So, James, you've, you've got your, um, your ratings and across all these sectors, what sort of reaction have you had from the financial services providers? I think you said at the protection review meeting that some people had threatened to sue you. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, as a former journalist, and I guess a current journalist in some respects, I, I guess I've always thought that if companies are threatening to sue you, you're probably onto something. Um, and, you know, from our perspective, we just need to be sure that our ratings are robust and our methodology is, is independent um, and that, you know, we've been as fair as we can with every company out there. And, and if we can convince ourselves and our consumer advisory board that, you know, is independent and oversees our business, that we are being independent and robust, then I don't think we have anything to worry about. But, you know, in answer to your question, you know, of course, companies don't like it when you tell them that they're not doing very well. <laughs> um, but, but you know, we, we try and turn that negative conversation into a positive one and of say, well, look, we want to explain to you why you, we don't think you're doing so well uh, and, and how we can help you. And, and then, you know, once they've met us, most of them quickly realize that our intentions are good. They might not like our methodology or agree with this. And then at that point, we'll either continue to talk to them or they'll say, fine, we're not bothered with you, and they walk away. Um, but thankfully, nobody's ever actually sued us yet. <laughs> and, um, I don't, and I don't and think they, they will. Sue us <laughs> about, you know, we, we, are, we stand by our methodology. You know, we're, we're not trying to villainize the industry. We're actually trying to raise standards. And if you've got nothing to hide, then you've got nothing to be afraid of. And I'm supportive of it 100%, especially the transparency side of things and, and the complaints performance and the claim score. All of that is so important. And the customer experience these days, I think customer experience is more and more important in whatever industry you might be talking about, whether it's airlines, trains, hairdressing, whatever it might be, not just financial services, but particularly financial services where we do have, unfortunately, a very poor reputation for not giving a very good customer experience. I think this sort of initiative will definitely make people think about upping their game. And, and from that point of view, it's, it, I hope it is really successful, James. What would be the one thing that you've learned out of putting together Fairer Finance that you'd like the listeners of the Marketing and Finance podcast to take away from your experiences? You know, I, I mean, I think it is that if you want to build a business that is truly customer focused and you want to be able to say that you are fair uh, and you want your customers to advocate for you and love you, then you have to change the culture of your organization to make that happen. Uh, and, and that is a significant task. But companies are starting to do it now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if that kind of transformation is not happening in your organization, then you are behind the curve. Uh, and, you know, that's what I've learned for, for a journalist going onto the other side of it and suddenly being in there on, you know, working with these companies as our clients, I've had a very unique insight, both sides of the fence. Uh, and, you know, I, I realize that there's a long way to go. There's a lot of, there's a lot of talk and often not as much action uh, and not as much willingness to undertake the hard work. And it is hard, mm. but it is achievable because we are seeing results with the people that we're working with. 
and, and we hope you know companies will will start to take that long-term approach and one of the things that i also like to talk about on the podcast is looking outside of the financial services industry so can you think of a of a product or a campaign or, or something that's caught your attention in the last year that you thought, wow, I really like that? Tell us what it was and what you um, liked about it. Oh, that's a tough one. Um, what have I really liked over the last year? I mean, I, I'm, I'm always really delighted when I see companies responding to feedback that we've given them. And, you know, we've started to notice banks like Lloyd's working really hard to improve their terms and conditions and putting fancy infographics into their documents to try and make things clear. And, you know, I, I love seeing companies do things which are longer term, no immediate short term benefit to them, but which are just undoubtedly, unquestionably in the interests of their customers. Uh, and the payoff might be five years down the line, 10 years down the line. And uh, it's just tiny little things where you see, you know, companies have made those improvements and it, and it gives you the indication that they're kind of shifting and moving in the right direction. Um, so there's just been lots of little things like that. You know, a, a couple of years ago, there were loads of companies that automatically opted you into paying by the month when you signed up for your car insurance because they wanted you to pay by the month so they could charge you 30% interest. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, we started banging on about it. And now there's only about one or two companies that do it. And, uh, and, and just bit by bit, you see companies kind of starting to listen and, and starting to change. Um, so, so those are the kind of things I get excited about. I, I you know, I suppose I, because I'm still writing columns for, for the Telegraph and, and being journalistic, I'm, I often focus on the negative and, uh, you know, perhaps not enough on the positive. Uh, and I think it's part of my job is to keep pointing out the things that aren't working. Um, but, you know, my advice with companies is don't tell people that you're fair and you're good. Be it. Be do it. it. And that's when I get excited, when I see a company doing something which is right and in the interest of the customer. Um, and, you know, we're starting to see more examples of that. Fantastic. James, it's been really fascinating to talk to you today about Fairer Finance and all the work that you're doing to make the industry up its game in terms of transparency and customer experience. I'm hoping that a lot of people listening to the podcast today are going to want to get in touch with you to perhaps talk about this in more detail. So what would be the best way for them to get in touch? Uh, yeah, just drop us an email. Um, we've got a few email addresses. Which was the best one? Uh, obviously, I'm not going to give out my personal one to your <laughs> millions of listeners. So let's go for corporate at fairerfinance.com. Um, but I pick up all the email addresses uh, myself. Um, along with my colleagues but I've got them all in my phone so you can uh, rest assured that if you drop me an email to corporate@fairerfinance.com, it will drop straight into my inbox and are you on Twitter? we're on Twitter at Fairer Finance we are I think just over 3,000 followers now which is very exciting um, and uh, 3,000 today 10,000 by the end of the year that's our target Fantastic. Well, I hope this podcast helps to increase the number of followers you've got and maybe increases the number of emails you get over the next few weeks. I will include those contact details in the show notes for this page, which you can find at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash MAF. That's rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash MAF. James, thanks again for coming on the show. It's been great to talk to you and I'm sure we'll catch up again in London at some time in the future. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. 
Do please look at the show notes at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash MAF for links to the topics, apps and books we discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. If you are a business person, financial services professional or journalist and have a marketing or finance story to tell, please get in touch. You could be the next guest on the show. And do remember, nothing we talk about on the show is financial advice of any kind. It's just thoughts and opinions, okay? 